service, we do a little celebration, uh, birthdays and anniversaries that have happened in the past month or the current month, but also uh, it's kind of our scoreboard. We're thinking about places where we have seen evidence of uh, advancement in our mission and our purpose as a church, our big vision uh, that we explained a couple of months ago, so I'm giving you fair warning. You could be thinking about, have you seen any big things? The big things, B is what? Building the kingdom? I is, I know y'all don't know any of this, that's why I'm telling you. I is investing personally, thinking about where people have invested sacrificially, uh, personally, in others. The first G is, big is B-I-G-G, the first G is gospel conversations. So, so if you've had any gospel conversations, not necessarily did someone profess Christ, but did you just tell about the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ? And the last G is glory seeking. Have you seen evidence of God's glory have you drawn closer to him? What is some way maybe that uh, you're just thankful that you've understood better the glory of God? So we'll celebrate those things at the end. Today, Mark 13, warning of things to come. We just put things to come on the bulletin. I, uh, I uh, developed the sermon a little further this week since the bulletin. So warning of things to come. Expectations are important. You know what? That's why I just told you about the black box. So you have an expectation that we're going to celebrate the big things expectations are important. My wife was telling Isaac just last night, I think it was at supper time, a little story about when we were first married, we had bought our first little place, a little five acre, a little uh, ranchette or whatever you call it, hobby farm, cute little place, no fences, needed to have fencing put up. And uh, she and I, we were newlyweds, you know, and we're out there building fence together and I'm driving uh, T-posts and I don't know why I decided to drive like eight foot T-posts, okay? Uh, Don't ask me why. And, uh, uh, you know, way up here and you get that big old heavy driver probably weighs about 30 pounds and Whitney would place the t-post and I'd get that driver and I'd, I'd slam it down and drive you know and we're newlyweds so I wanted to be able to drive a post you know and just one one uh, drive never happened and I lift the t-post driver up and I slam it down but it came off of the t-post when I went up you know because in my Herculean strength I went up and I drove it down and instead of you know coming down I hit the edge of it and when I did that t-post driver goes Boing. <laughs> and I mean, I think I hit my knees and I know my eyes were watering and, and my wife, in all of her compassion, <laughs> she just starts laughing and I get so mad and, uh, you know, I can't repeat, I mean, I can't remember what I said. Uh, I know it, it ensued in uh, me watching her walk back to the house. No more help building fence. And uh, so she was telling Isaac that and she said, you know, we were newlyweds, and it's kind of like, I didn't know what this guy was really like. And, and, and you know, she didn't know I could probably be that mean or whatever, and, and, uh, and, and expectations. You know, my expectation that was my, that my, my new bride would, would uh, you know, fall all over herself to kiss my boo-boo and put a Band-Aid on my owie, and so I learned right expectations, right? If I want compassion, I need to call my mommy. And uh, expectations... We're journeying with Jesus in the book of Mark, and we come to a pivotal passage in Mark 13. And, you know, what's happened is Jesus has now come into Jerusalem for not the final time, but the final time in this part of his ministry before his cross. Mark chapter 11 records that Jesus rides into Jerusalem with great fanfare, riding on a donkey colt, and the people are waving the palm branches, Palm Sunday, right? They're waving the palm branches, Hosanna! 
God save us. This is the Messiah. It's the expectation. And I can just see the disciples walking around like, oh yeah, we're part of this party. And their expectation is I think that Jesus is going to come. He's going to take his throne. He's going to take over the temple. The messianic expectations that they have. But all of a sudden Jesus turns up in the temple and instead of people flocking to him, you know, and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees recognizing that this is the king, this is God in human flesh, actually, they're opposed to him. And Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables and he says, you know, you people have made this a den of thieves, thieves a house of robbers. Then in Mark, so, so you're thinking, that's not exactly how we expected that to play out, Jesus. And then Jesus tells about this parable about a vineyard owner who has rented his vineyard and prepared all of these things. He's rented it and he sent his servants and the tenant farmers kill his servants and his messengers. And finally, the vineyard owner sends his beloved son and they kill him too. And in that parable, he says, and the vineyard owner will come and will drive them out and will destroy them. In Matthew's gospel, same account, we find that Jesus talks about, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would gather you to myself, but you would not, and now your house is left desolate. And I can just see the disciples going, Again, this is not what we were expecting from the Jewish Messiah. It's not how they envision this journey into Jerusalem going. It doesn't fit their ideas of messianic ministry. And so we're alerted that the salvation of Jesus looks far different than his disciples first expected. And then we come to this passage, Mark chapter 13. We're going to examine it. And Jesus is going to give warnings of things to come. And I think the point is that the disciples would know what to expect and that we as his followers too would understand what we should expect in this life. Warnings and warning signs are everywhere. Did you see that uh, Hershey's put out a warning that there very likely is going to be a Halloween candy shortage? True story. Now, I suspect they're trying to drive up candy sales, get you to hoard candy now. I don't know, but they've warned that there could be a candy shortage at Halloween. Health experts, news media warning about monkeypox is the next thing you know. They're trying to get people to get vaccinated for. We've got people warning of looming economic recessions. It's everywhere, and, 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 and the drum beats are getting louder about that, right? I had a banker tell me the other day, she's like, they're saying recession's coming. I'm here to tell you it's here. That was a banker. So warning signs. Yesterday's headline from The Guardian said this. Soon it will be unrecognizable. Total climate meltdown cannot be stopped, says expert. Professor scientist Bill McGuire has this book called Hothouse Earth. And that's what the article was about. And in that he says it's unavoidable. The natural disasters are upon us. We cannot turn back time there is going to be all kinds of deaths and things with climate change. So that's what that article was about. And I say all that to say not to try to make you some kind of climate change person or whatever. You know, believe what you want. But here's what I'm saying. Warnings are everywhere in the news media. The Bible is not the only place where we find warnings about things to come. But I would tell you this, it's the most reliable place. You don't have to wonder about the slant. It's true. And we're going to find that out today. And we come to Mark chapter 13, the most detailed prophecy of Jesus about future things recorded 
in the Gospels. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And I'm going to do something different. Is that right? Amen. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So Mark chapter 13, I'm using the New American Standard. We're going to put it up on the screen. And it's a long chapter. But what we're going to do today is let Jesus preach the sermon. And I'm just going to add some commentary at the end. Scriptures, uh, Paul told Timothy, he said, Give yourself to the public reading of Scriptures. And listen, I know this is a long passage, but I want you to hear it in its entirety from the lips of Jesus as recorded in Mark chapter 13. So here we go. Follow along or you can just listen along. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the signs when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony To them, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you're about to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and his father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or or, or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is our Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of the day 
or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say, I say to you all, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Let's consider the setting and the occasion in which this Olivet Discourse, this pivotal teaching of Jesus occurred. What was happening? What was the question? What was the occasion? Well, you know, as we've traveled through uh, the book of Mark, we've looked at various places. There is this intense interest and explanation about the geography. So they're there in the temple. And then the teaching moves over to the Mount of Olives there in verses 1 through 4. So they're in the temple, and the disciples are in awe of the grandeur of the stones of the temple. I don't know if they're baiting him to try to get him to tell them more about what's to come, but one of the disciples just simply says this, Man, look at these stones. Aren't they amazing? I read somewhere that some of the foundation stones of the temple of that day were as wide as 60 feet and some as tall as 11 feet, a single stone. This temple, this second temple, was considered one of the uh, great um, miraculous things of the ancient world, one of the uh, things that people were just in awe of. And so here's the grandeur of these stones, and the disciples said, man, look at that. Isn't this place amazing? Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones will be left on another. And I think in that pronouncement of the decimation of this temple, the the disciples are probably in shock for some time. I just can't see how that could hardly be, Jesus. This thing has stood for centuries. It stood for centuries. How could it be? Who could move a stone away? Who could build these, uh, tear down these things? The second temple. This is Herod the Great's temple. Now you'll remember about the 10th century B.C. there was Solomon's temple that was destroyed, 586, 587, by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Okay, they're in captivity for 70 years. Then we studied about this not long ago. Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and those people, they come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild. This is the second temple. But it's not got a lot of glory to it. It's a little more simple, a little more scaled back. Well, Herod the Great... All right, about, I think they said about 20 BC begins to undertake the rebuilding and the renovation of this temple. This is Herod the Great's temple. The the temple and the courts and the walls, they say it, it spans about 40 acres, 35, 38 acres. I want you to think about that. This 40 acre plot with this grand temple, 150 feet tall, stones bigger than any of us can even fathom. Here is this beautiful thing. Dismantled is what Jesus says it will be. Totally decimated. And I think the disciples are processing that. So they leave the temple. They cross the Kidron Valley. They go up to the Mount of Olives, just adjacent there to the temple. And they're looking across at that. Now they're on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. And they're scratching their heads and they come to Jesus. Peter, James, Andrew, John said, Jesus, tell us more about this. When is this going to happen? 
Tell us about the signs of when it's going to happen. They're on the Mount of Olives. That's a historic place. A place where the Old Testament prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would set foot on the Mount of Olives and split it apart. I don't know if that's figurative. Maybe that's something to come. There on the Mount of Olives is the place where Jesus wept looking over Jerusalem. There at the foot of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane right before the cross where Jesus will pray fervently that the cup would pass, but he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There at the Mount of Olives after the Last Supper where Jesus and the disciples sang, there on the Mount of Olives where Jesus, after the resurrection, would ascend, there on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. Jesus launches into this teaching, answering the disciples' questions about when will these things happen and what will be the signs. Now, if you go over to Matthew, in the telling of the Olivet Discourse, there's one more thing that he adds that Mark does not about the questions of the disciples. They say, when will these things happen? What will be the signs? And what will be the signs of the end of the age? So maybe the question is a little broader than we would first expect just upon reading this. But they want to know, how do we know about this? How are we going to know when this is going to happen? And Jesus begins to answer those questions. I hate to say it, but actually in Jesus' answer, I think he opens up a whole slew more questions that Christians throughout the ages have speculated and wondered and scratched their heads about. And even I, I have to say, this is one of the most fascinating studies I've done. My wife warned me. She said, you probably should make this into two sermons, but I'm going to try to get through it. All right, here we go. I mean, I had a bunch of notes. This is amazing stuff. But I don't want to go through all of the details. I want to hit the big contours about the Olivet Discourse that some people call the Little Apocalypse or the Little Revelation because it has very much in common with the style and type of writing and the things that are found in the book of Revelation. One of the key questions is how do we interpret this? How literal should we take the various things that Jesus says? Now, apocalyptic literature and this kind of thing is purposefully, I believe, kept vague. A little bit vague. It wants to give you some broad reliefs and help you understand some things without getting into the nitty gritty. So there probably are some things that we go, you know, something has to be, maybe be a little figurative here. And we have to decide which those things are. The reason this is important and why I need to teach about this, even though I don't have the answers to all the questions, is that many people see this as a problematic passage. For instance, the atheist Bertrand Russell, in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, he said, he cited that the Olivet Discourse is one of the key reasons why he could not believe in Jesus. Because in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about his second coming and about the destruction of the temple and about all these things. And he says, and this generation will not pass away before this happens. Bertrand Russell says, look, Jesus did not come again. It didn't, all of these things, the cosmic disturbances did not happen, so I can't believe. But even good Bible-believing Christians look at it and go, this passage is difficult to interpret. Amen? How many of y'all have looked at this and go, I'm not sure what, exactly what to do with all this. Be honest. Lie. Do y'all read the Bible? R.C. Sproul. One of, I mean, he's a great theologian. R.C. Sproul says this, I think the Olivet Discourse is the most significant problem we face in the Bible with respect to the question of the nature of Christ and of the Scriptures. Meaning, there are some things here that are really hard to square and see that Jesus got it exactly right. But I'm here to tell you, 
Let the word of God be true and every man be a liar. Anytime we can't square things, the problem is not the Bible's, it is ours. And so we probably need to dig a little deeper. We need to pray a little harder. We need to see if maybe we can see how these things come together. Because Jesus makes these big sweeping statements about the end of times, it seems. And he says, this generation will not pass away. Now listen, here are the various ways that people uh, interpret the Olivet Discourse and the end times kind of things. Number one, there are people that say, look, all of this did happen. AD 70, for instance, is when the temple was destroyed. All of those things happened in some way or another, even though it was probably you know, very figurative language used here. Uh, it happened in the past. That's a preterist view. It happened in the past. It's historic. It's, it's already over. We don't need to look at the Olivet Discourse as things in the future. So there are people that say all of that happened back in the first generation. We just need to understand that. There are people that go to the other end and, and almost see no historic fulfillment of these things. They go to the futuristic interpretation, meaning everything that Jesus said here is all like end of times, right before he comes again, remakes the earth, final judgment. It's all there. And then there are people, and this is the camp that I would fall in, that say, I think, I think it's both. I think there are both things going on here. Now, some people who are in that camp say, well, it's sequential. At some point in this passage, Jesus stops talking about the destruction of the temple, and he starts talking about the end of times. I don't follow that train of thought. Here is my thought. My thought is that Jesus is looking out and he is talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and the things that occurred. And I think that that is the first fulfillment, but I think there is a greater fulfillment. I think there is an end times type fulfillment. I'll show you why I think that from a couple of the verses here in just a moment. But I think there is also precedent for understanding prophecy that way. Meaning, most of the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, for instance, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah talks about there being a virgin with child, the immediate fulfillment of that was that Isaiah's wife was going to have a baby. But then that is applied to the Messiah to come, so there's an immediate fulfillment, but there is the bigger, broader fulfillment of things to come. That is how I understand this passage. Hey, listen, you're free to have your own interpretive scheme. That's about the only three that there are, you know, and it doesn't matter which one you follow, you're welcome here. We can, we can debate, we can discuss, it'd be good discussions and things like that. But here's what I know about Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. The things that were written in the past are written for us today. There are timeless theological truths and principles of the Scriptures, even things that were fully fulfilled in the past, and they speak to us today. So that's what we want to know. How do these things speak to us today? And they do speak to us today. Let's look at Jesus' warnings of things to come. Real quick, I've just broken it into three or four different groups. And I would encourage you to go back and read on your own. The first grouping is in verses 5 through 8, as I've grouped them anyway. He talks about the things to come. He's telling his disciples, the things to come, here's some of the things you're going to see. You're going to see false Christ, international wars, and natural disasters. Specifically, he talks about earthquakes. He talks about people coming in the name of Jesus or saying that they're the Christ, that they're the Messiah and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. But listen, he doesn't say that's the end. He says that's the beginning of the birth pains. Just like giving birth, there are these pains that come along and they get closer and closer together. They get a little more severe. So when you see these things, listen, if you hear on the news about wars and rumors of war, you go, oh, it's the end of times. Well, actually, 
Those are birth pains type things. All right? So he says there's going to be these kinds of things happening. There was upheaval in Jesus' day in 66 AD. There was a Jewish-Roman war that broke out. This war broke out, and it wasn't until 70 AD that the temple was destroyed. And I'm going to tell you something. Mankind around the globe, various times and places, can fight the war to end all wars. We can sign treaties. We can have peace accords. We can have all of these things. I'm going to tell you something. As long as there are people on the earth and there are flawed men and women ruling things, we are going to have wars and fights and rumors of wars. And it is not until the Prince of Peace, Jesus, comes that there will be true peace on this earth. This creation and people and nations are groaning and heaving, awaiting the redemption that Jesus is going to bring. And so Jesus tells his disciples, man, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. You're going you're to hear about earthquakes and cities devastated. In our day, we hear about wildfires and floods and all of these things. The same kind of things are happening. Hey, listen, some of us are under the wrong expectation that because we're Christians, we're, you know, this world is just going to continue to get better and better and better. I'll tell you what it's going to continue to do is keep on groaning and heaving and facing hardship. That's just life. And we need to understand that until Jesus comes back and renews all things, we are going to see these things and certainly the disciples. So here's, here's his 12. And they're going, man, the Prince of Peace is here. He's about to usher in this perfect kingdom. And he's going, no, not yet. You're going to hear and see things that are going to blow your mind. So there are all of these things. There are false Christs. I don't know exactly what to do with this. They say that there were people, uh, you know, not long after Jesus um, ascended in the early days of Christianity, there were people going around claiming to actually be Jesus. I'm Jesus. Every once in a while, you know, you can drive by Walmart or something. There's someone out there panhandling. They might have a sign that says, I'm Jesus or something. You know, and you just hear that and you go... You know, I don't know what to do with that. But, but I think probably the application for us today is, is there, there are people out there claiming to have all of the answers and they're going to usher in peace and they know the right answers apart from Jesus. And I'm just going to say to you today that the only answer, the only Savior, the only Messiah is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he ain't come back yet. So you're going to have all these people and I think we can look around and search the internet and find people that claim that they have the exact magic combination to fix the world. They don't. You get all these false Christs and saviors and messiahs. And I'll tell you who you need to look to. You need to look to Jesus. The next thing, verses 9 through 13, the next block is that there will be Christian persecution. There will be even uh, to the point of splitting up families, family members betraying one another. And Jesus says, and you're going to be hated for my sake. You're going to be hated because of me. And when I read that, I just read, it reads exactly like the book of Acts played out. The disciples are going out and they're preaching Jesus and people hated them. It split up families because there were people that didn't follow Jesus. There were those that came to Jesus. There were people stoned, killed, imprisoned, all of those kinds of things. And so it has been throughout Jesus' time, that those who claim the name of Jesus many times are met as messengers with a message of hope and salvation. They are met with fists and knives and weapons and hatred and resistance and bloodshed and prison cells and mockery. And Jesus says, that's what you can expect. Don't have wrong expectations. Hey, I think a lot of Christians are been out of shape today about the things going on in the world and about how our message, and we're being labeled as bigots and haters and all that kind of thing. And I'm not saying it's right, but I'm just saying Jesus was right. He said, you're going to be hated for my sake. 
interesting to see what's going on in our country today. People who are of the world, children, parents, whatever, brothers and sisters, who, for everything I read online, people that absolutely, they hate their Christian family because they have bought into the lies and the deceptions and worldliness that is out there. Jesus said it would be exactly that way. But here's what Jesus says about the gospel. Man, don't let that slow you down, because I have this message. The gospel has to go out, he says, to all nations. We can't let persecution and hatred and mockery and threats slow down the gospel. That's what he says. It's got to be preached to all nations. You want to know why? Because all nations and all peoples are sinful. And are under the wrath of God and must be born again. Must be forgiven by God. And there is only one way. And that way is Jesus. You must repent of your sins and believe in the Savior that God has sent and be saved. Can I ask you today, are you safe from the wrath of God? Have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And accepted the forgiveness that he offers by rending your heart before him? And being born again, that's the only way to be saved from the wrath that is to come. Folks, we need that message today right here in Valley Springs, Arkansas, just like they needed it 2,000 years ago where they were at. And just like all around the world, every tongue, tribe, and nation of peoples need to hear this. Man, did you know Jesus saves? Did you know God loves you? And he sent his son to make a way for you to have eternal life, for you to overcome death in him, for you to be born again, to be resurrected, to live forever with God. Have you been born again? You must be born again. And we have that message that must go out. So Jesus says the gospel has to be preached in all nations. You know, what's amazing about this is this band of 11 disciples plus some others out here, you know, after Jesus' death and resurrection, they go out and they change the world. And this message is still being preached today in all kinds of places. The gospel must go out, and it did go out. It must continue to go out. The next group of things that would happen, warning of things to come, abominations and tribulations in verses 14 through 20. He speaks about the abomination of desolation. And then there's that little parenthesis that says, let the reader understand. Here's a little footnote. In other words, that's supposed to trigger you to thinking about something. It goes back to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. An abomination of desolation or an abomination that makes desolate God's temple. That's kind of a a thing that people disagree about what that means. The first century historian Josephus, who was not a Christian, he was a Jew, he thought that took place with Antiochus Epiphanes when he set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. Some people said that another emperor named Gaius uh, in AD 40 tried to set up his statue in the temple, though I think that was thwarted. Many people believe that what he's talking about, about the abomination of desolation, is when Titus and his Roman armies came and surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. They desolated or desecrated God's temple. I can tell you in A.D. 70 that did happen. Jesus' words that one of these days not one stone will be left on another actually happened. You can look it up. Well, of course, Wikipedia. That's where you look up everything, right? You can look up in the history books in AD 70, a Roman general turned emperor named Titus surrounded Jerusalem at Passover. 
Passover was one of the pilgrimage holidays. And there, there were said to be over a million people in Jerusalem. And Titus and his armies surrounded Jerusalem. In fact, they camped on the Mount of Olives, the very place where Jesus gave this discourse. And they battered and beat against the walls. And so the Jews closed the gates and they tried to hold off the Roman army. And as you can imagine, food began to run short. So there was a famine, plagues, and sickness. History bears out that people began to eat Oh, cannibalism. Cannibalism occurred. And then there began to be power struggles. How are we going to do this? Who's going to lead us against this Roman army? And so the Jews began to kill one another to try to get power and have the say in how they were going to fight against Titus. But what history says is over one million Jews were killed in AD 70. About 100,000 taken prisoner of war. And sure enough, they finally broke through the wall. There's a piece of that wall left today. It's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. But none of the temple is there. Not one stone. You want to know why? Why what? not one stone was left on another? Because Titus and his army set fire to the temple and all of the structures and, and different things around the temple complex. And there in the temple, of course, were all of the gold and silver articles that were part of the worship and as they set fire, it said that the gold and the silver began to melt. And it ran down and it made its way between the stones where normally there's mortar. So you had all of these precious metals, gold and silver, between the stones. Well, after the war was over and Rome had conquered, looters came in. And they wanted the gold and silver. And to get every last bit of it, they dismantled that 150-foot tall temple, stone by stone, layer by layer, and not one stone was left on another. What the disciples could not fathom as being even possible or true, Jesus says, it's going to happen. And it happened. Abomination that causes desolation. The temple is desolate. The temple has never been rebuilt. And on that site today, there is the Dome of the Rock, an Islamic holy site. No temple. No temple worship has occurred since all of that happened, since Jesus' words come true. Verses 24 through 30 are the ones that kind of give me pause to thinking that we should only interpret these things as having happened in A.D. 70. Jesus begins to talk about cosmic disturbances and the coming of the Son of Man. His second coming is what we would understand that to be. Now, I must admit that sometimes the Bible uses figurative language to talk about cosmic things. Like when he talk, the Bible sometimes talks about the sun, moon, and stars being destroyed or blackened. What's being meant there is that the rulers and the governance is crumbling. It's dismantled. It goes away. That is true that sometimes the Bible uses those things that way. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul refers to something very similar as what's described by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and an abomination that causes desolation. Though he doesn't use those exact words, he talks about an antichrist, one that comes in the power of Satan, the coming of the lawless one. But he does talk about this abomination of desolation. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 ties that happening with what? With the coming of Jesus in great power and glory, in the meeting of Christians to be with Jesus. What we would call the second coming. I think also some talk about the rapture or the resurrection as happening with that. The fact is that I cannot square those verses as only being figuratively spoken of. So, so I look at 
those who interpret the Olivet Discourse with that preterist AD 70 uh, grid, and I go, in what way did Jesus come back in the sky and gather his elect? And so if you look at those who write about that, they say, well, what happened was, uh, you know, Jesus' church began to proliferate after the temple was destroyed. I go, "I I just can't see it. I just can't see that being the literal fulfillment of what Jesus was talking about here. So I think we are left to see that there is a greater fulfillment of these things yet to come. Here's what we know without a fact. What's going to happen in the end times that, I mean, we have to believe as Christians? Two things. Number one, that Jesus is coming again in great power and glory and kingship. So Jesus is coming again. We can discuss about the tribulation and all of those kinds of things and the rapture. We can talk about all that. But what we've got to understand is it is clear. Jesus is coming again to set up his kingdom. And number two, the resurrection. The final resurrection will be with him forever. Let me make a few points of applications as we close and move on to our uh, little big black box celebration. A few points of application. Verses 31 through 33, I think Jesus nicely summarizes his sermon and gives points of application to those who are listening at that time, and those who are listening at all times. And the first thing he tells us is, he says, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. My word will stand forever. Get this. There is a truth and timelessness to the words of Jesus. We're all caught up in reading our news feeds and news cycles and all of these things. I tell you, you you want to know how to order your life, to be prepared for the things that are to come? Read Jesus. There is a truth and a timelessness to his words. It's amazing the temple was destroyed within a generation. A generation is generally 40 years. Within 40 years of Jesus giving this sermon, the temple was dismantled. And all of those horrific things happened. The word of God, my friends, is true. And it is the best thing that you can order your life around. Let me encourage you today. To trust what Jesus has said. Trust what Jesus has said. You know, an amazing thing, there were almost no Christians that we know of killed in AD 70 in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' followers, those who were Jews, they still celebrated the feast and all those things in the early church. Why were they not in Jerusalem at Passover? You want to know why? Because of this sermon. This sermon... The early Christians truly believed in a literal fulfillment of the destruction of the temple. And Jesus gave these signs about armies surrounding. History bears out that when the Christians there in and around Judea and Jerusalem, they were there probably getting ready for Passover. They saw the Roman armies and Titus' armies coming in and they escaped to a city called Pella. They went to safety. That is exactly what Jesus warned them to do. When you see these things... Come down from your house. Don't get anything. Get out of Dodge. Flee to safety. The Christians took Jesus' words of rescue literally. And they were saved. Folks, I want to tell you something. We better take Jesus' words of salvation literally today. There's coming judgment and wrath. And the only way to be rescued is to come to Jesus and to have life. 
He also says this, and this is a good word for the church. Be alert and be watchful. Man, don't be setting dates. We're supposed to be alert. We're not supposed to be ignorant to these things. We're to be thinking about these things. But guess what? You're not smarter than Jesus. You don't know more about the end times than Jesus. Amen? Well, Jerry might. I don't know. He's pretty studied. You don't know more than Jesus. And Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels, not even the Son of Man. In other words, I don't even know. It only belongs to the Father. How arrogant and ignorant are men who set dates, whether explicit or implicit, meaning I know he's coming back like, like this year. It was just back in the 80s when I was a kid. There was a book, Why Jesus Must Come Back, what was it, in 1988? How many of y'all bought that book? <laughs> it sold 2 million copies of the U.S. Somebody bought that book. Jesus must come back in 1988. Beware of setting dates, but also beware of falling asleep. Jesus says, be alert, be watchful, don't be deceived. Just be ready. You know how you can get ready? Live your life according to the words of Jesus. Do what he told you to do. Be like one of his servants working in his house. That's what he says at the very end of this. Just be working, be watching, so that when he comes, you're not asleep, you're not ashamed, you're ready. You're doing what you need to do. I want to close this with this. And again, I don't know if it's all the constant news and things that we see, the communication, but I know this. I know that uh, people in our country, maybe many of you sitting here today, are buried under anxiety and worry about the state of the world. One of the reasons might be because we expected that with all of our uh, uh, smarts and technology and, and, and good governance and politics that we could fix all the problems of the world. Not going to happen. Maybe we've got wrong expectations. But I suspect it's this, that we've put our hopes in the things of the world. Hey, you should not leave this place buried under a weight of anxiety about things to come. You should place your hope fully on Jesus Christ who knows the future. He knows that he's coming. He's got you safe in the palm of his hand. Hope in Jesus, not in the things of this world. Don't hope in the price of gasoline, right? Like John even prayed. I mean, we've been... Praying for rain, thinking that's going to cure, cure all of our woes. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Just another state or two over, the rain has come and it's flooding and people have died. So, you know, man, we can't put our hopes in the things of this world. Put your hope in Jesus. Don't be anxious for anything. Trust him. Trust him. When you leave this place today, leave trusting in Jesus. Would you bow with me as we just have a prayer? And this prayer is going to be a time for us to get our eyes and our hopes fixed back on Jesus who has the words of life and his words never fail. So would you bow with me? Father, today we are aware that things are messed up in this world. We're quite aware of that. All sorts of brokenness and heaving and, 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 and questions that we have and this group telling us one thing and this group telling us another and as we set our sights on the things of this world, God, we, we are blown about and our hearts become heavy and anxious. 
But Lord, you tell us that though in this world we have tribulations, that you have overcome the world. And so today, we want to anchor and tether our hearts back to you, back to our Savior, the one who has promised. You have promised us there is no wrath or condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but hope in a future. So would you help us to have right expectations about living in this world, would you help us to live as you would have us to live, as vocal and loving messengers of the gospel, of the radical news that Jesus saves, regardless of what we've done, if we're willing to turn to him. Help us to be bold in that and to face the haters and, and the mockers and, and those who would harm us for speaking for Jesus. Help us in that. Strengthen us, embolden our witness. God, take from us, we pray, our anxieties about the things of the world, about the economy and, and the climate and all of these things. God, we lay them at your feet, and we trust you as the sovereign King and Lord of the universe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.